Hey, my name is Katie Bulmer. I was your typical heartbroken and hungover sorority girl who looked for love in boys, Bacardi, and did I mention boys? After the breakup that broke me, I met the only man who can truly fulfill me. His name is Jesus. Shortly after that, I met my husband, the best example I have met of Jesus on this earth. Today, I have never been more sure I am right where I'm supposed to be on a mission to help today's young women find their life calling, stop dating dirtbags, and basically just be who I needed when I was younger. I've been called a big sis, an adopted mom, or my favorite title, a cool aunt. But however you think of me, get ready to be challenged and encouraged. This is the Truth For Your 20s podcast. I'm having a fangirl moment because I have with me Tish Oxenreiter. I have followed her for, gosh, 10 years or more back from her simple mom blog days and her and her family, her husband and three children have traveled the world together. And now she is doing something really cool with a new book called Bitter and Sweet, A Journey to Easter. And so we're going to talk about that and a little bit of everything else. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's good to be here. Yes. Okay. So obviously that's a, you know, 30,000 foot view of you, but uh, give us a little bit more details of Tish and, and you're in Texas these days, right? I am. I'm just North of Austin, which is where I grew up. That was my hometown. So we're in a little community about 30 minutes North of it or so. And, uh, but we've lived all over, like you said before, and we've traveled all over. I am first and foremost, a mom and a wife. I've got three kids who are now two teenagers and one, an almost teenager, which is hard to believe. And I still write books after 12, 13 years of doing so I podcast and I lead annual pilgrimages, particularly when there's no plague, (laughs) it just depends. And then, um, I also teach English high school, English twice a week. So, um, um, I wear a lot of little hats and keep my plate spinning. Uh, relatable. When people ask me what I do, I'm like, grab a seat. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, for sure. So now you are talking about your new book. Um, I guess just kind of back us up, you know, so many different hats. I want to hear a little bit just because I'm honestly just very curious. Your pilgrimage across the world with your mm-hmm. husband and three children. I would love to just kind of like, I'm sure that framed your view for so many different things. It did. And actually that does loosely in a way tie in with this next book. So it's, it's all good. Um, Yeah. In the 2014, 15 school year, we decided to backpack around the world. Um, My kids at the time were ages four to 10 or four to nine. They all had birthdays on the trip, but we went for several reasons. But the reason we went at the time we did is because they were at a particular age that we felt like gosh, they're old enough to hold their own backpacks and be potty trained. Those are basic criteria we had, but they're still young enough to where they're not too terribly rooted to, you know, structures and, and friendships and and that kind of thing to where a year of um, living out of backpacks would be beneficial a net benefit more than anything. And so, um, and my husband and I at the time were both working remotely. He had a job that he could do from anywhere. I obviously was writing. And so I could do that from anywhere. And so we decided why not now if ever. And so we spent the year, everyone had their own backpack with their limited amount of clothing and just supplies that they lived with for a year. And we went in one direction, headed westbound and went to 30 countries and had the most amazing experience that however many years that is later, our kids still talk about nearly daily. So uh, we're very glad we did it. 
and opened their worldview. I'm sure like so much. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, even in ways that they're not even aware of because of the foundational years that they went, you know, a lot of people would ask me why go so young. And I really do believe that the more we travel, the better travelers we become. And that's the case with kids as well. So you might think, gosh, four-year-olds that they're difficult to travel with, but really, and truly he became such an expert at navigating the world with us that it became normal to him. And yeah, interacting with different cultures, different foods, different ways of of interpreting time and, and all the things that, um, affect our worldview for sure. I heard you actually interviewed on another podcast talking about this and it made me laugh in a little bit of a way because all of this sounds magical and I'm sure that it was, but there's also the reality of we are always together 24 seven <laughs> and it made me think, I listened to that pre pandemic and you know, then, then there we were all as families love you, mean it. Could you go somewhere else for a little bit? For sure. Yeah. It was almost like, Ooh, we've, we've had a boot camp for this already. I jokingly slash really and truly not jokingly say that was the hardest part. And it's not obviously because I don't love my family dearly. It's simply because that is who we knew in our little corner of the world, wherever that corner took us. And so, yeah, that was, that was a challenge, but it also taught us a lot about family and bonding and what it meant to be part of our clan. And also, um, how we're all wired, you know, and in, in terms of needing alone time, needing outside time, you know, all the different ways that God's made us and our little quirks. Uh, we, we learned a lot about that. I, I love it. I love it so much. And I think I'm sure you have, uh, well, you do, you have a book on that as well, right? Uh, I wrote it down at home in the world. Yeah. I wrote a book afterwards about what it meant. Um, I wasn't sure what the topic was going to be about at the time. I knew I'd write a book about it, but um, it surprised me just as much as anybody that the book ended up being about home and belonging and what that meant. Um, because that was, I think the lesson God taught me most about not having one for, or at least a settled one for a year um, in terms of why we're all hardwired to know and be known in a particular place and community, um, that that's how we're made. And so, um, as much as I love living remotely, I learned that I love just as much, you know, being in my little tiny ordinary world in my backyard and my kitchen, you know, just like everybody that there's a reason, uh, we all long for that. And that's because that's how we're made. Oh, that's money right there. <laughs> Because, <laughs> you know, I talked to a lot of young people and we applaud travel and we should, it's a beautiful thing, but it was also something beautiful. Like you said, having roots and knowing the doctor and the plumber and the, the teacher and all of that, it, there's a beautiful thing to that as well. Mm -hmm. So you had a blog called Simple Mom, you traveled around the world, you wrote a book. I'm sure there's so many details that we're living out along the way, but tell me about where your travels, so to speak in the, in the online space and what you've been doing since then? Well, you know, the blog I started way back in um, late 2007, early 2008 at the time we were living in Turkey and I'd started it, you know, I had a newborn and a two-year-old. So that shows, you know, how time flies. And I had started it out of honestly, therapist suggestion. <laughs> I was diagnosed with uh, depression while we were living abroad. And my therapist had suggested finding a creative outlet, something I could do, you know, no matter what culture I lived in that, that just kind of made me feel like a person. And my husband was the one that suggested a blog. This was of course at the time when um, they were exploding and everywhere. And that was the primary means of communication online. And so I started it, it took off. I never imagined it would actually be a career for me, but 
Fast forward several years later, it became the art of simple fairly early on. I want to say about, you know, five years into the blog. So most of its iteration was as the art of simple. And um, it explored all sorts of uh, topics related to simplifying life, because I think we all have that desire, especially in our modern world that feels ever more complicated. And so I ended it at, at the end of 2020 for basically one main reason. I just felt like it was time. I think God was very clear about that and loved every second of it, loved writing with our team of writers. And, um, but I didn't want to stop writing because that was, I think, just part of my core DNA and how I think and process and share with the world. So I, I still write mostly books, my newsletter. Um, I write at least weekly, sometimes several times a week. And that's been a lot of fun. And of course I still podcast. I've been podcasting off and on since 2011. So I kind of joked that that was the smoke signal days of podcasting. Yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah. I've been in this space for, for quite a while now. I'm kind of a dinosaur in the internet space. Um, and I take pride in that. No, I, I think you're amazing. I think you're killing it. I seriously, I look up to you in so many ways. I think oh. you're, you're blogged before blogging was cool and you, you've done everything <laughs> that I read and digested on the internet world amazingly. So kudos. Oh, well, very kind of you. <laughs> Hey friends, I hope you're enjoying this conversation as much as I am, but real quick, I want to tell you it is a start of a new semester and that means I'm filling up my calendar with speaking events. I'm still offering lots of Zoom and of course, some in-person events are starting to happen sometimes here and there. Will we ever go back to normal? I don't know. I'm mostly booked by sororities, but I also love women's groups or organizations. Anywhere you need some motivation, I am your girl. So check out my website, katiebulmer.life. I have a link for speaking with all the information you need. Send me a message and we'll get the conversation started. That's katiebulmer.life slash speaking. Okay, so tell me about the new book. Where did that come to be? Well, kind of to tie it back to that round the world trip, one of the things I was internalizing related to, I mean, I could look back on hindsight, it all related to some form of belonging, but um, I was really intrigued by this ancient Benedictine practice of creating a rule of life. The monks in the fifth, sixth century first started this idea of kind of creating a a set of rules, but not in a dogmatic way, just in a more like a commitment to live their life in a particular way concept that we can still adopt in our modern world. Well, so I ended up really exploring what it meant to create your own rule of life um, so that it helped you make decisions in terms of saying yes and no to the right things so that you live according to your values. And in doing so, all of that led me to also just learn a lot more about the historic church you know, the liturgical calendar is part of that and has been for most of the church's iteration, you know, for almost 2000 years. And yet I grew up in a fairly non-denominational evangelical environment in the U.S. that didn't really, it wasn't like it eschewed it or, or, you know, threw it out the window. It just never recognized it. It was kind of a non-thing, but, you know, along with traveling around the world and really experiencing how global the church is, recognizing that the liturgical calendar is this way of leaning into time that most of the church recognizes, you know, most of the church is not the U S and the American way of doing the church and um, just recognizing that there there's rhythms and seasons that the church recognizes as good practice for us to both live in harmony with each other, but also live with our history 
uh, you know, the church, our, our forefathers and mothers that go before us and what we can give to those who come after us. And it's a gift for us to live in rhythm and in tandem with the natural seasons, the way God has made the world. And so I found that really intriguing because at the time, I remember the year before we left, I was just feeling really burned out with a lot of the, um, what felt like to be extra things related to like Christmas. And I, I was just kind of over it culturally. And, and one of the things I told my husband was that I was looking forward to a break from Christmas for our trip. Um, that, you know, we won't have all the commitments and the expectations and obviously on the trip, you know, really no presents. And so I was really looking forward to that. Well, it rekindled an interest in those holidays for me because um, I recognized that, gosh, no, they, they actually seem to be gifts from God. You know, when we look at the, I mean, even before the birth of the church, the Jewish traditions, you know, there are festivals and feast days and seasons and, and we repeat them again and again. And it seems to be something hardwired in us that we long for those traditions. We long for those seasons. So my first foray into the liturgical calendar was Advent. Um, Advent is the start of the new year for the liturgical calendar. And so um, those are obviously the four weeks leading up to Christmas and then Christmas is 12 days long. And then some traditions even recognizing it as going all the way to February 2nd. And then you've got a little bit of what's called ordinary time. And then of course, there's also like epiphany and those other ones, but, and then you enter this really strange to our modern sensibilities season called Lent. Lent starting with Ash Wednesday which is another strange day really to our uh, modern sensibilities and walking us through the 46 days, the six weeks to Easter and Easter, you know, which most of us know and recognize um, is technically actually 50 days. It's an Easter tide season that leads us to Pentecost, which is in early June. And then we have a few other weeks, just recognizing a few gifts from the church, like the Trinity and the Holy spirit. And then we go into ordinary time all the way, leading us to a few other days back to Advent. So all that to say is that I wrote my first book, Shadow and Light, about Advent um, out of a desire to find to have a book that I couldn't find anywhere else. I wanted a book that was simple yet meaty, meaning like it wasn't so childlike and so um, shallow that it felt like this is simply kind of a written form of an Advent calendar, you know. Yeah. Um, but there's also the other extreme where books were so heavy and dense and, um, also had this like expectation that if you didn't keep up daily, you were quote behind. And we all know that those few weeks leading up to Christmas can be really busy. And so I didn't like that feeling of like being behind and anyway, ended up writing that Advent book. And there was enough interest from readers who really appreciated shadow and light, um, asking if I would do the same thing for Lent, because I think Lent is even more foreign than Advent to most American Christians, or at least Western Christians who didn't, who weren't raised in a liturgical church kind of culture. And so long story short, that's what I ended up doing. I wrote a book for Lent for those who are looking for something rich with meaning, but also not overwhelming and something they could just pick up and go as they needed it for the six weeks leading to Easter. And blown away. I love all of this. I think that's so important because as you said, there's all of these traditions for lack of a better word that we, that are good, that are important, but that we either don't understand in Western culture 
don't think are important or for whatever reason, just don't, don't value them and don't incorporate them. I know for my family, the same, it's not that we grew up shunning it. It was just not a non-issue. So I love to maybe just unpack it a little more. Um, maybe if you don't mind, like a quick thing about Advent just before, just kind of back up because most people, listeners have probably heard of Advent, but why does it matter? Why, what's the, you know, meaning behind all of that? Yeah. You know, and I think with that, there's something really cool. I, I sense it, you know, in the air and the water these days, uh, people are craving some of that ancient practice and yeah. tradition. So there's a renewed interest in things like Advent and Lent. So that makes me happy. Um, Advent traditionally has been the four Sundays, starting the fourth Sunday before Christmas, leading us to Christmas day. And what it is, is it's a slow walk toward what it is we're recognizing on Christmas, which is the feast of the nativity, which we all know, you know, the birth of Christ, but what it remembers is this already not yet season that we live in, in our, in our era. So Christ has already been born and we are still waiting for his second coming. And so we live in this in-between time, uh, it's long been called the already not yet season. And so Advent recognizes that we live in that uh, sense of discomfort. You know, Christ has redeemed the world and he has overcome death. And yet we still live in a fallen world and we still live in that in between, you know, our fragile bodies, our, our um, broken world. And so we remember slowly walking from darkness to light the gift of Christ's birth. Um, it's important to remember with things like Advent, Lent, other liturgical, liturgical practices is that they're gifts yeah. and they're not to-do lists, meaning God isn't there with a clipboard and a checklist expecting us to recognize, you know, these particular seasons in a particular way. Um, they are gifts from the church, from our wise, you know, mothers and fathers that went before us, recognizing that these are good for us to do. The gift I find in Advent is a slowing down. It's a slowing down so that we can enjoy that anticipation. You know how a lot of times, especially with children, the anticipation of Christmas is almost more enjoyable than Christmas day itself. You know, we all have that a little bit of that letdown afterwards, like, Oh, that, that's it. Um, it, it allows us to savor the, the looking forward to, and it reminds us that we are anticipating the return of Christ. And so that's generally in a nutshell, what Advent is. It's a little bit of a penitential season, not quite as much as Lent where we recognize kind of our own brokenness and where we fall short, but not in a, um, not in a sense of beating ourselves up at all. It's more of a recognizing our need for God's grace and that it already has come and that we live in that grace. Ah, I love all of your teaching and it's so simple pun intended and <laughs> relatable and all of that. So you walked us through Advent and now Lent this again, beautiful season. Most people have heard of Lent. Some people practice it. Some people don't. I'd love for you to unpack it as well. Yeah. Lent uh, funnily enough is actually older than Advent, at least in according to what we can find in church writings. Um, we have writings as far back as the 100s. So the second, second century where Christians were practicing Lent, uh, these penitential days leading up to Easter. So it's helpful to think of Lent um, and the purpose of Lent more if you already, if you work a little backwards and think about what the purpose of Easter is. So Easter, as we know, is the feast of the resurrection of Christ, right? So we recognize that Christ has defeated death and that because of that, we too receive that gift of grace that we are no longer um, succumbed to death, 
that we will live in eternity with Christ. So when we recognize that that's what we're rejoicing and celebrating in Easter, if we think of the six weeks leading up to that, we are recognizing our need for that, our need for how we live in fragile, broken bodies, and that we are in a state of needing constant grace 24 seven. So a lot of people know of Lent as a season of fasting. You know, that's usually what people think of first when it starts, it starts on uh, the sixth Wednesday before Sunday, um, which is called Ash Wednesday. On Ash Wednesday, in a lot of traditions, you go uh, to a church and the priest uh, either smudges on your forehead or sprinkles on your head, some form of that ashes. These ashes typically come from the leaves used in Palm Sunday the year before uh, for churches that do that. They burn the leaves and then they become the ashes for the following year's Ash Sunday. They smudge on your forehead and they say, to, uh, from dust, you came into dust, you shall return. In other words, a poetic way of saying you're going to die. <laughs> uh, don't forget life is short. Don't forget that your time here on earth is very, very temporary. So that's how we start Lent. It's a bit of a, of a, it could be seen as a dark and gloomy way to start reality the season. And in, in some ways it is, but that's on purpose. Right. Yeah. And so with that in mind, people usually take uh, some form of fast for those six weeks leading up to it. The reason for the fast is not to prove our mettle as Christians or to show God, look, I'm really serious. I want to follow you. It's to remind ourselves of our constant dependence on Christ's gift of death and resurrection. It's to remind ourselves, boy, I am so glad that this is not a measure of my worth because we do screw up Lent, right? Most people feel this inclination to beat ourselves up if we quote, mess it up, you know, mess up our fast and spoiler alert, we will, right? Because we are humans. Um, But that's part of the process. It's part of reminding us that, gosh, I really do depend on Christ for every little single thing, even my breath in and out, as I'm reminded of from Ash Wednesday, right? That this gift of life on earth is temporary and a gift itself. But the thing that a lot of people aren't aware of, at least in our modern era, is that Lent kind of is a three-legged stool. There's three parts of a Lenten practice with the seat being Easter. So fasting is just one part of it. The other part of it is prayer and what was called almsgiving or, you know, just giving. And so tying it in with prayer and giving, it can be more communal, you know, within your family or within your roommates or within your, your life situation. And it can remind you of the gifts that you do have here and now. So as an example, um, a lot of people might fast from food, right. For Lent. So they might fast from a type of food like chocolate or sugar, or they might fast from a particular meal of the week. Um, but with the giving component, you can tie in something related to that, such as, um, you know, one year when I fasted from sugar, I also planted a garden. I planted a vegetable garden, or you can give the money you would otherwise spend for that meal to some, um, ministry that focuses on people with food insecurity. Um, and so when you tie that in with prayer, it becomes this trifecta of, um, an embodiment of what it is we're doing here. So it's not just about like flogging ourselves with like, can I live without something? Let me see if I can do it. Um, because that turns into legalism and that's not what it's about at all. So good. You said something I was reading up obviously on your book and, and all the things you've been working on. 
and I, and I want to hear you unpack it, that Lent, sit down, people who are listening, there might be a riot. <laughs> Lent is not in the Bible. And so many people have heard that and believe that. So where did it come from? Mm-hmm. Yeah, all we know, we, we're not entirely sure other than... I can't remember if he was a priest or, or some sort of church leader around 150, 160, who um, in the documents of one of these councils in the meet, the meeting minutes, it mentions Lent. It mentions Lent as this fasting season, you know, before Easter. So it was assumed that part of getting ready for the celebration of Easter that people fasted. It was just assumed that Christians quote, readied themselves spiritually, mentally, physically, emotionally through some form of fast. And so it wasn't even debated, like, should we do this? Is this, you know, a thing to do? It was just assumed. And so, because that was so recent from the, the followers, the apostles who wrote the new Testament, we can perhaps surmise that there was some sort of practice. We see a lot of that in the Old Testament, in the Jewish traditions of fasting and feasting, kind of a, those two go together. Usually before feasting, there is a fast. And so that's what we can guess as the the birth of Lent is that it just came as a natural part of Easter, that it was just almost assumed that that's what you do before a big feast like, like Easter. I love that. I think we often forget that, you know, most of the Bible was written to people like this is these are my peers. These are people who look like you get it. And so it's just kind of understood. And here yeah. we are, you know, 2000 years later, wait, I don't, I don't, but then thankfully we have lots of historians and people who study these things. So that's right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But that's awesome. And you also mentioned how now you look forward to Lent. And I love that mm. perspective because a lot of people will be like, Oh, I have to give <laughs> up chocolate or whatever. Mm-hmm. Tell me about that. How you see it as something you look forward to. I look forward to it every year in the same way I look forward to Advent in that I'm reminded that it's a gift, right? It's not a to-do list. It's not something God is requiring of me. It is something he is giving me as a gift from the church here on earth as an invitation. It's an invitation to draw closer to God by um, reminding myself of how temporal I am. And so to me, it's one of these things that I look forward to, not because I can't wait to get rid of something that I love or because I can't wait for life to be a little bit harder. It's more of, I look forward to hearing what God's going to teach me or say to me, or teach me about myself, teach me about Christ, teach me about the church, the earth that I live in, the culture I live in. I just look forward to growth really. And Lent is a gift of growth. In fact, it's kind of funny because I feel like the past like five, six years that I've been much more intentional about Lent, I never intentionally sought out that, which I fasted from it almost like slammed into me when I was least expecting it, like maybe sitting in traffic or in prayer or just going about my day and realizing, oh gosh, this is what I think is supposed to be my Lenten fast for the year. And usually my initial response is like, oh, shoot, you know, like whatever it is like, oh yeah, you're right. (laughs) That's probably what you're going to use to teach me through this, this season. And um, sure enough, that usually is the case. So that's what I look forward to. I look forward to growth really. I just think perspective is everything. And I think that's beautiful. Just, just looking at it that way, like it is a gift, you know, and we have a good father who gives good Mm -hmm. gifts and just shifting that perspective is huge. Another thing I saw that stood out to me is during this season, as we're kind of perhaps taking something away or just having different eyes on stuff, noticing beauty in art and stuff like that, that brings us back to Easter. My 
23 year old eyes were slammed open when I went to New York and at the Met and there's tons of art and paintings and sculptures around, like you said, like 100, you know, the year one, like people who knew people who knew people who walked with Jesus. And if you ever live or visit New York, you need to go see this. But anyways, there's so much more than just in this one museum. I would love for you as someone who appreciates art and sees that, you know, talk to us a little bit more about that and how we can just incorporate that in the season of Lent. Yeah, that was a a must have I felt in both my Advent and Lent book was incorporation of art uh, in some capacity. So I have just like my Advent book, I have a playlist that accompanies my uh, Lent book so that we have um, music to walk us through from Ash Wednesday to Easter. And then I also have weekly art that we can look at. And part of it is from my love of history. I love the idea that, you know, especially because I see so much of us craving this like I need to remember that this modern world is not actually all there is and that we are connected to our ancestry and our heritage as Christians. And so this art reminds us of that, you know, that we, we exactly what you said, we have art from a really long time ago, from people who literally walked with Christ displaying, you know, what it, what life is like with him all the way to today, you know? And so bitter and sweet has art from, you know, the ancient world all the way to just a few years ago that shows either some manner of uh, Christ and his life on earth or some of the Lenten practices that I, I explore. So the book digs into kind of what's classically in church history known as the seven virtues and seven vices. And so I explore art that explores that such as, you know, gluttony and temperance or sloth and um, diligence, because I think humans are wired for beauty. I think humans learn through beauty. I think we feel more united through beauty. Um, And I think there's such a thing as objective beauty. And I think God reveals himself through beauty. We see that in nature. And so we also see that in tandem with um, the work of of an actual human being, an artist, that he is gifted with the talent. And so um, the art I've chosen for the book, both musically and visually, points us hopefully to Christ and the gift of grace through Easter. I love it all so much. So this book comes out. I'm going to make sure we air this episode before the Lent season so people can get a hold of it and perhaps walk with the devotional. I love that you incorporated art. I don't know why that just, that speaks to my bones, Tish. That is beautiful. Well, you know, it, like I was mentioning about, like I wrote the Advent book because I couldn't find what I wanted. It was the same idea. Like I wanted something like that and I didn't find it. So it's like, you know what? We all have access to music pretty easily now. Thanks to the internet. Let's, let's incorporate it. Let's make that, you know, a full experience that we all want. Well, thank you for using your gifts as an author to translate all of that for the rest of us. I love it. (laughs) Happy to. So something I did not prepare you on, but I love to ask all of my guests before we close is if you could have coffee with your 20 year old self, what would you say? Oh my gosh. What a fun question. (laughs) Um, I think I would, you know, when I think back to my 20 year old self, I was a perfectionist. I think I really, you know, classic firstborn. I really, um, it's not so much that I, I saw that as like 
my worth, but I think I kind of did, even if I didn't mean to, like, even if I knew in my head, like my worth is not determined on how perfect I can be or how, you know, my accomplishments, but I think I still struggled with that. So I think I would tell myself more than anything, it's okay to make mistakes. Like it's okay to try new things and learn from those mistakes. Um, you know, the best art, the best writing, the best, the, the best, athletes, the, the, the people that end up giving us the, the great things that we love on earth come from making mistakes. Yeah. And, and so, um, just giving myself a lot more grace to just be a person that, that messes up from time to time, because that's what it means to be human. Right. Um, so that's probably what I would tell her. And also just to kind of relax, like have more fun. <laughs> I think I, um, you know, I know sometimes some 20 year olds maybe go too far that other way, but I definitely didn't. I was, I was a little bit more of the, you know, come on, Liven up. It's okay. You don't need to study all the time. You don't need to uh, be, I don't know, the firstborn who needs to make sure everything's okay. Um, enjoy life a little bit more. It's all so. in balance, right? Yes. That's don't right. have so much fun <laughs> that you can't see straight, but also. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. That's awesome. That's right. Mm-hmm. So how can we make sure we get our hands on the book and follow all that you are offering in the internet world podcast, all of that good stuff? everything honestly is at my website and that's the easiest place instead of giving you 27 links. Um, so Tish is where people can find me. My name is spelled weird, but I'm the only Tish Oxenwriter out there. So you should be able to find me at Tish We'll make sure we link that in case you can't spell it. No worries. Um, <laughs> yeah, we'll make sure we link that in the show notes and I'm thrilled to meet you as close enough as in person we get these days. Such a pleasure to hear from you, to learn from you. And I can't wait to share this episode. Thank you so much. I really appreciate having me. I'm over here giving you a virtual hug because you just finished another episode of the Truth For Your 20s podcast. If you like this episode, do your girl a favor. Take a screenshot wherever you're listening and share it on social. Tag me at Katie Ballmer Life and I will reshare. And thank you so much for spreading the word. Speaking of which, if you haven't already, please leave a review on Spotify or iTunes. It really helps other girls to find this. And guess what, you guys? We just reached 200,000 downloads. That is all thanks to you. Thanks for sharing it. Thanks for leaving a review. And thanks for joining us each week for some truth for your 20s.